That out of the way. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, I'm going to try not to be as animated, but I can't control that. It's like my daughter said, I, you guys are with the preachers all together. Jenna says, of all the voices, I can hear you and your dad. They're the loudest. I'm like, I know. I try to calm down, but I can't help it. I get loud and excited. Sorry. But if I get loud and excited, there may not be a sermon tonight. So I'm <laughs> trying to keep this voice okay after talking all day, every day for a whole week. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13. This chapter is widely known. Uh, and, and perhaps, unfortunately, the chapter break comes here uh, because it often gets disconnected from chapter 12 and chapter 14, uh, where we haven't left the topic of here are the Corinthian Christians and how they're supposed to behave with their spiritual gifts. And, and Paul has been giving those directions on how they ought to be using those gifts and how chapter 12 c- concludes as I'm going to teach you a more excellent way. You need Need to be desiring the higher gifts. And the reason why he says that is because they all think that speaking in tongues is the pinnacle. That's the best gift of all. And everybody who doesn't have a gift is either a lesser Christian or has lesser spirituality. And look at us with his tongue speaking. We're really awesome and they're not needed. And so he's written this letter in this section to say, no, we're dependent upon one another. We all need each other regardless of the gift that you have. And even you have this diversity of gifts, it all comes from one spirit. And by the way, rather than worrying about those gifts, you need to be seeking something greater. And that's what transitions then into chapter 13. So while this chapter can be certainly applied to your marriages and to relationships and things like that, the primary focus and meaning of the text is toward each other, God's people. That's the original intent of what Paul is writing. He writes all of this about what love looks like and what love does and what love doesn't do. What we should have in our mind is in the community of believers. With one another. This is what we are supposed to look like toward one another. So you notice in the first three verses where it simply he tells us the necessity of love. This is why love is the most important thing. It's a shocking declaration when you hear here is the Apostle Paul. Given uh, the spirit and all that he can do and listen to the words that he says, if I speak in a tongue of men or of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging symbol here. Here he basically says, if I don't have love. If I use this spiritual gift of tongues, then it's just simply noise. And it doesn't have the value that God wants it to have. And verse 2, well, along with it, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And I hope you get a sense of what Paul now is doing when you read the words like that, that he's making an exaggeration for an effect, a fancy word hyperbole. Uh, this is an exaggeration of what he gives. Notice the language in verse 2. And here's the Apostle Paul. He says, now suppose I'm able to speak in tongues. Tongues of men and even of angels. And I have all these prophetic powers. And he even goes on, I understand all mysteries. (laughs) Wow. And I have all knowledge. And even if I have all faith. So I can even move mountains. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. 
That's a powerful argument. That's a powerful way to say it. Is here is Paul going, suppose I had the collection of all the gifts and it gave me all information, all knowledge, all faith, all power, all wisdom, and I could do everything. If there is not love, it doesn't matter. Which leads to, I think, a really big conclusion for us as we move through our study this morning is the motivation behind our work really matters to God. It is so important that we do things with a proper heart, that we have a proper reason and a proper motive for the things that we do. And here are the Corinthian Christians and the point that the apostle is making in all of their arguing and evaluating and comparing the gifts that they have. He's telling them If you don't have love, you're missing everything. I mean, think about it when he says in verse two, the apostle Paul says he is nothing. I mean, of all people that we like in the scriptures, I mean, we're all like, you know, Paul, wow, you know, whoo, you know, stoned, left for dead, persecuted, goes right back into town the next day. You know, he says, it's nothing. I'm nothing. If love is not the motivation behind it, it's not right. And I think that is so important because what you see then is even using these miraculous spiritual gifts in the first century, as you would have seen these Christians doing, if it was with a self-centered motivation, nullified one's very standing before God. The reason why we do things matters to God. The heart behind the service we give and the actions that we take and the things that we do toward one another and for God is so important to God that notice in verse 3, notice the extreme language continues, this exaggeration. If I give away all I have, you know, imagine, here's Paul, I have nothing left. I'm just going to give it all away. Talk acts of service, I'm going to give, give. If I just give it all away... And I delivered my body to be burned. But if I have not love, I've gained absolutely nothing. Even the most extreme acts of selflessness, if not done for the right reason, is still nothing. I think that's kind of a hard reality because you sit there and think and go, wow, well, you know, even if I'm not doing it for the right reason, at least God sees the works that I'm doing. And here is the Apostle Paul understanding, look, people do things for all kinds of reasons. But if the reason isn't a love for God and love for one another, then we've missed it. Then we've truly missed why we're here and we've truly missed what we're doing. There is absolutely nothing to be gained before God. If the reason why we come and the reason why we do certain things is not out of a love for God and a love for one another. It just it becomes nothing. And I hope then that will lead us to a, a, an important thought process. Of, so why do I do the things that I do? That the love for God would become such a, an important part of who we are that if, if I don't put that first, 
If I don't check myself and go, now it's not about comparing myself to other people. And who cares if this other person is able to do this or that? Because that's what he's dealing with with this group. And we've talked about that in the 12th chapter. That what happens is we compare ourselves to one. Well, look at all the things that they're able to do and I can't do that. Or look at all the things that I am doing and they're not doing what I'm doing. And so look at me. And he's just blowing that up and saying, do you understand that if all that we do is not come out of a love for God and love for one another, that even the Apostle Paul says he is nothing and has gained nothing before God. And so it's an important reminder to us that we hear these words that we must exercise, we must practice love. This is the critical aspect that Paul wants them to understand. Now, unfortunately, before we can move forward, I think we have to look back at verse one for a minute. Because verse 1, here is the statement that says, Now if I speak in the tongue of men or of angels. And so what will happen, people will say, Well, what this means is that there is this angelic tongue. And so that is why you hear not foreign languages when people speak in tongues today. But they're actually speaking the tongue of angels. And that's why nobody can understand them. And so what we would often define as gibberish or sounds kind of la-la-la-la kind of thing. Well, what that is is legitimate because it's the tongue of angels. And so I'm going to give you five reasons just because that fills up the PowerPoint. I don't want to keep you here all day, but I think five might be, might be sufficient. I'm going to give you five reasons why that doesn't work. Number one, remember what we've learned in our study about tongues that we looked at two weeks ago. A tongue just simply means a language. All this is saying is if I'm able to speak in the tongues of men, human tongues, or angelic tongues. All right, so languages. Yeah, if I'm speaking languages of men or I'm speaking languages of angels. And that kind of takes away the mystery behind it. When you use the word tongue, I don't know. For, for me, it's almost like, well, that sounds... You know, mysterious and hard to understand, and what is this? But he just simply said, Now, if I'm able to speak in in, in human languages or angelic languages, but I don't have love, what's the point? Is, Is all he said there. So, angelic languages doesn't sound quite so complicated, but I hope you've seen in the text just by itself, truly, Paul is using an exaggeration. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things to observe. There's no way that he really means literally, I can speak every language, whether it be a human language or even angelic languages, and I have all the prophetic powers, and I have knowledge of all the mysteries, and I have all the wisdom and all faith so that even I can stand here and I can move mountains. And I've given all that I own and everything I possess. And I've given my body to be burned. He's not doing that. He's using an extreme. This is exaggeration to say, even if you went to that extreme, or even if you possess everything, it doesn't matter if it's not driven out of love. And that's what makes such a powerful impact. You can give your body to be burned, but if it isn't out of a love for God and love for one another, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have all prophetic powers, oh, Corinthian Christians. Because if it's not out of love that you do these things, a love for God and love for one another, it doesn't matter. 
That's what he's doing is he's using these extreme declarations. And so I think verse 1 fits very naturally. Even if you can speak all the human languages, and even if you can speak even angelic languages, not that there's necessarily such a thing. But even so, if there is such a thing, let's say, okay, no, there really is angelic language. Fine, I don't care. Go ahead. Great. What would be the point for us? <laughs> What would be the whole purpose of people on earth being able to speak angelic languages? I know we talked about when we talked about when we spoke of speaking in tongues, that whole lesson there, this this languages thing. Why would God speak in a totally spiritual language to a human being, this angelic language? That nobody on all the earth can understand. So that he would have to reveal himself to this other Christian what those words mean. When he could just reveal himself with a language that somebody understood. You see all the hoops? What's the point of doing two? Just do one. Just talk to us. It almost implies God is unable to speak to human beings directly. So let me give you a language that nobody understands so that I'll have to invoke somebody else to be able to interpret all that. That's what we talked about the speaking of tongues, the speaking of languages. What's happened is, is it is a foreign human language that some understand and some don't. We'll get to more of that in chapter 14 when he gives the rules about all that. And so, in a congregation where half of you speak Spanish and half of you speak English, message comes into me, Spanish information, and you know I don't speak hardly any Spanish, un poco, that's it, I've got that one down, and grande, make, I need bigger food. Uh, that's about all I can do. And I start speaking in Spanish. Well, there needs to be an interpretation for this side of the congregation to know what's being said. It doesn't make any sense for God to reveal himself to a congregation in a language that nobody in the room understands whatsoever. What? Though the functioning behind this was to be able to spread the gospel and to show a great sign about how God is now giving these messages to people all throughout the earth and how the gospel would spread with that. Number four, I think this one is is useful just for consideration. If there is such a gift today... As speaking in these angelic languages, why is it that everybody has that one and none of the others? There's what we see in Acts 2, and we see here in 1 Corinthians, is people are speaking earthly languages. Like suddenly I could speak Russian to this Russian audience to be able to teach them. But why is it that everybody who claims to be able to speak in these languages, to speak in tongues, nobody has the ability to stand up and go preach to Russia the gospel like they could most certainly use. Why is it that everybody has an angelic language? Because remember what we saw, God is the one who gave the gift and activated the gift and empowered the gift. You didn't get to choose. It's not like you could say, well, we're all just really feel like having an angelic language. That doesn't work that way. God is the one doing it. If these things are still today, then why don't we see a wide variety of that? Why don't we see people in Africa speaking Afrikaans and teaching them? Or French and speaking and teaching them? Or Chinese and speaking to them? Why don't we see that? Why does everybody have the language of angels? 
And I submit to you the reason why is because they don't have a gift at all. Which is, remember how we started all this. Spiritual gifts are only given by the laying of apostles' hands on a Christian. That's what we see over and over again. Paul wrote it to the Romans, I want to come there so I can give you a spiritual gift. He writes to Timothy and says, you got yours when I laid my hands on you. We see it in the book of Acts. They lay their hands on them, Acts chapter 8, and that's how they receive the gift. Over and over again, it doesn't make any sense to look and say there was even an angelic gift in the first place. But even if there was, that was taken away when the apostles passed away. So I think it's important to to sit there and go recognize, okay, it's just languages. It's just supposedly an an angelic language. And Paul's using that for exaggeration. These three verses are all that. And verses two and three are clearly exaggeration. And these verse numbers get in the way. That's a paragraph right there. He's talking and saying, why, Corinthians, would you argue over these things and think these things are more valuable when love is what is needed behind these very gifts. So these are the reasons why tongue of angels does not make any sense. But unfortunately, what happens is you come to that first verse and you key on that one phrase, the tongue of men and of angels, and miss all of what Paul is saying in this text. The point is you don't worry about that and that those things, these gifts are not important. Love is the thing to be pursued. And yet what we see in our religious world today is such a high emphasis on, well, I have something you don't have. I have a gift that you're not experiencing. And there's something wrong with your faith. There's something wrong with your spirituality if you don't have these gifts, which is the very thing that this paragraph is teaching against the paragraph that's often used to try to explore that these things should still exist today. All right, verse 4. In verse 4 to verse 7, he now tells them the character of love. And what is, I think, a little bit interesting about this is that the things that he says love does are the things that the Corinthians are not doing. Here's all the things love looks like, and by implication, this is what they're not doing. This is why they're having conflicts and why they're having problems. And I'm not going to go into detail with this long list, but just listen to what Paul has to say and just get a sense of the concept, the, the, the picture, this beautiful description of what love looks like. That love is patient. It suffers long. We're going to be patient with one another, care for one another, be patient in our words toward each other, patient in our actions toward one another. That's what God wants in the body of Christ. He says, he continues in verse four, love is kind. And love exhibits a a, a gentle nature to it. It exhibits a tenderness toward one another, you know. Well, use it, be nice, right? You know, there's just being nice, kindness, using that and appreciating that and behaving in that way toward one another. Love doesn't envy. Talk about pushing the button on the Corinthians right there. Here they are arguing over who's got the better gift. And here is Paul saying that doesn't matter. This is not a competition. 
There is not supposed to be any competition in the body of Christ. This isn't about, well, who's doing what and which one's more important, as if we're supposed to be envious one another. That's what chapter 12 taught us, is that all of us have a work, all of us have a part, all of us have a function in the body of Christ, and every part is equally needed that we are completely dependent upon one another. There's no best preacher award. There's no best elder award. There's no best deacon award. There's no competition. And there's no greater glory because of these things. We all are looking to do our part. And envy is completely unnecessary. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Nor is it arrogant. But there's no room for pride amongst God's people. Love doesn't display pride. If we love others because we love Jesus, then we're not going to be concerned about receiving recognition. And we're not going to care that other people get attention. And we're not going to be concerned that people pay attention to other people and what they're doing. It's not going to matter to us. Love is not arrogant. Love is not proud. Love doesn't boast. In fact, rather than receiving that recognition, we're going to want to deflect that to God anyway. We're not interested in receiving accolades. That's not why we're here. That's not what this is about. This isn't about uh, us getting any kind of attention beyond it all pointing to God. And so he says that love doesn't boast. That's what they've degenerated into. Well, who's better? Who's got recognition? Look at us. That can't be in the body of Christ. It's not relevant to us. Love does not behave rudely. It doesn't dishonor other people. And we can't tear each other down with our words. We can't hurt each other with our actions. Love does not behave in a way that tries to hurt other people. Love does not behave in a way to be dishonorable toward another person. We would never want to do that amongst one another to say things or do things that's dishonorable or rude or hurtful or painful uh, because we love the Lord. Love doesn't insist on its own, own way. This is perhaps one of the key parts of harmony. It's one of the key parts to having harmony among Christians is that love is not self-seeking. Love doesn't seek out its own interests. Love never looks itself. It's one of the most important concepts behind love is love is never thinking of self. Any type of marriage counseling I ever offer is love doesn't think of self. Your whole purpose is to think of your spouse. That's what the marriage is doing. It's not about thinking about you. Marriages fall apart when we start thinking about ourselves. Love, it does not insist on its own way. Love is not self-seeking. And so we will remember that in our lives together, in our worship together, and in our service together, we're not going to behave selfishly. We're not going to seek our own benefits. and We're not going to be demanding of one another. We'll look out for the best interests of each other. Love is not provoked, it's not easily angered, it's not irritable. In short, we're not going to be set off quickly by each other. We're not going to just quickly get upset because of what somebody else says or does. It's not easily provoked, it's not irritable. One of my favorites, because it's an accounting concept, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It's so easy to become bitter and resentful as Christians. Well, look at all the things they've done wrong to me. Look at all the things and ways that they've harmed me. They've done all of this against me. Love doesn't keep the record of wrongs. We don't store up all the wrongs committed in our minds so that we become bitter. Love finds no joy in wrongdoing. We're not going to see be happy when we see other people fail. 
We're not going to find our joy in seeing other people sin. We have a sad state, I think, in a lot of people anymore that I see in the world that are friends of mine is that they take joy in other people's failures. That's not love. Love does not enjoy seeing other people fall on their face. Love does not enjoy seeing other people fail. Love does not enjoy seeing other people do wrong before God. And so often it's easy to fall into that because that's what our culture thinks is great. And as loving people, then the last thing we're going to do toward one another is applaud when each other are in sin. We're not going to say, well, that's all right. You know, we're all human. That's all good. No, we're not going to enjoy that. And we're not going to do that. That's what he lays out here. Love finds no joy in wrongdoing. We don't want to see other people stumble. Instead, we rejoice in the truth. We rejoice to see other people excel. And it's sad that that becomes the other side of it. So then we get envious and angry when other people do well. We want to see them fall down and we, we get upset when they do well. That's horrible. But that is really a lot of the world that we live in. And we have to make sure that that does not infiltrate our thinking. That when other people succeed, when other people do well, when their faith is growing, when they're growing stronger, when they're able to serve God in greater and greater capacities, we want to be people who not only rejoice with that, but encourage it. Not sit back and go, well, I don't understand why I'm not able to do that. Be glad that they're doing it. Rejoice in it. And express that. I love how it's just simply memorable in verse 7. If there's any way to just kind of take it as a daily walk with God. If here's the things that we need to do and what true love truly looks like. How it's described. To say that love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. And endures all things. That's a tremendous summary of all of these descriptions that, that he's given here. It simply boils down to we don't give up on each other. We continue to believe in one another. We continue to entrust our lives to one another. We want to see the best in each other. That's the picture that's being given. <clears throat> and so we will continue to do that. We will think the best of others. We will possess great hope for one another. And I love that endures. And love endures even when we are harmed or even when we're hurt. Bears with all things. It believes with all things. It hopes with all things. It endures with all things. This is the picture that the Apostle Paul is driving at here. If we are going to have this higher, greater gift... Look to love. You want uh, you want better, Paul says to the Corinthians. You want the best gift of all. You want a more excellent way. Here's, here's what you're supposed to put the target on. Put the target on love. And if we put the target on love, then all of the other things that God wants us to do will fall into place. If we will put the target on love, then it's not about, okay, I'm going to aim to be a preacher, or I'm going to aim to be a teacher, or I'm going to aim to be a... Aim for love. And you will be all that you can be in the kingdom of God. And you will find all of those areas where you can excel and grow and serve. Aim for love for God. Grow in that area. And the rest will come. That's why I think such a beautiful picture. A great reminder to us of what is required of us. And then to take it one final thought. Without the love of God 
or the love for one another, we are nothing. And nothing is being gained. It was a little dismaying to hear about things that other Christians go through by the treatment of other Christians. And this chapter, let it resonate not only to a marriage, but resonate to the people of God. This is what we are supposed to look like at all times. And it's never acceptable before God to lose these characteristics in how we treat each other and how we behave with each other, and how we talk with each other. We need more patience. We need more bearing with one another. We need more enduring. We need more believing in one another and not assuming the worst of one another. We need these things. This is what Paul is writing. And so often it is easy for us to forget in our effort for doing what is right, to forget that if the motive behind it is not right, then we stand as nothing before the eyes of God. And all that we do then has been a waste. Let the love of God be your motivation for serving. Let it be your motivation for any action that you take. And I submit to you, this is the fundamental difference between why anything else we do is approved before God versus those in the world being not approved before God. You look out in the world, well, there's people doing good things, right? They give, they serve, look at all these wonderful... Well, what's the problem with all that? It's not because it's a love for God. Love for God has to be everything. Otherwise, it becomes nothing before God. That's why we do the things that we do. If loving God is not the motivation, then we've ended up with absolutely nothing. You pull your psalm books out. We'll sing the invitation song here in just a moment. I commend this group highly for as much of these things that I see regularly practiced by the people here. Uh, I can hardly think of another group where I've seen the kinds of displays of great care for whatever it is that that person needs, whether it be spiritual or physical or emotional, whatever that person goes through. I commend you that as I read this, I felt like the Apostle Paul and I have no need to write to you of these things. It's so wonderful to see the love that this congregation has, the continued harmony and care. And I hope that this will be a continuing motivation to recognize this is exactly what God wants us to do for one another. This is exactly what Jesus is looking for. He displayed the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate giving of himself and sacrificing his son. And that leads us to sacrifice our lives to serve him, which leads to serving one another. It's a beautiful picture. If you haven't turned away from your sins and seen the love of Christ and how you need to follow him and serve him with all of your heart and seeing that he is devoted to you and giving his life so that you could have the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, and home of eternal life. We respond to the invitation this morning.
when you respond and see what God has offered you and the love that He has displayed, because He is the ultimate picture of what this looks like. Jesus perfectly practiced these things toward us. And now it is our call to do the same. If you're ready to come to Jesus, will you come forward now while we stand and while we sing?